Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back. It's the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only podcast that focuses on watching soccer on TV online and apps. In episode 127, we discuss the trials and tribulations of TNT's Champions League experiment, an interview with Caitlin Murray about her new US Women's National Team book, how well the Champions League final did in the TV ratings, uh, a look ahead at the Women's World Cup and uh, the TV coverage there, plus letters from you, the listeners, in our mailbag section. My name is Christopher Harris, a.k.a. The Gaffer, and I'm joined by my co-host, as always, Kartik Krishnayar. Now, Kartik, uh, it's been a whirlwind uh, week this past week. I mean, we've had, obviously, uh, since this last recording, we've had the UEFA Champions League final, of course, and then the US uh, friendly against Jamaica, so on and so forth, and actually a whole bunch of other games too, of course. But um, let's start off with that USA against Jamaica game that was on Wednesday night on uh, FS1. And uh, this one with John Strong and Stuart Holden commentating on this one. One of the things I found, Kartik, just watching this game is that um, when the US men's national team are not doing well, there's not much to talk about. John Strong gets extremely quiet. Uh, it's during the broadcast, almost like to to a level where he seems to be, I don't know, depressed or, or just so down on this team that there's just l- long gaps of silence, which is unlike him because usually he's very talkative. He's even nonstop going through the game, talk, talk, talk. Stu- same with Stuart Holden, but this one was was a little bit different. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I um, uh, changed the channel to uh, to Univision after about 20 minutes. Or, or maybe even sooner than that, because uh, uh, the U.S. played decently for the first ten minutes. Was bad after that, really bad. And um, my um, my my annoyance level was about the number of stats, which I think were meaningless, that were being thrown out, and the sort of uh, a platitudes uh, Holden as as the co-commentator were giving. Um, there were obvious. They were obvious, easy bits of analysis that even armchair. Um, I mean, a lot of the analysis of, about the U.S. men's national team from the U.S. men's national team fan base is 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 bad, generally, and it has been for years. You probably people who know me have heard me criticize it. Have even seen me say that I won't tweet during U.S. games because U.S. fans are not are not getting the full picture. But this this match was was relatively easy to kind of uh, understand. Um, 
why the U.S. was having problems uh, in their team, and it, it seems like there was there was that analysis was missing, that bit of analysis. Uh, I like John Strong as a commentator. I do think, like many American commentators, he's very stat heavy. Um, but I think you are onto something, uh, Chris, because his commentary style when he does international matches like at the World Cup last summer, not involving the United States, uh, and when he does an MLS match where uh, he's ostensibly a neutral. I mean, we know he has an, 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 uh, ties to Portland, but uh, throwing that out, where he's ostensibly a neutral. Uh, when he's uh, done uh, uh, Champions League matches in the past, many of them, uh, he's ostensibly a neutral. There's something very different about the way he calls U.S. men's national team games. And I don't know if that's um, necessarily just him. I mean, if you think about even um, the Ian Darks of the world who have called a lot of U.S. men's national team games in the last uh, decade, there, there might be, uh, and J.P. Del Camera, there might be a difference. Hey, actually, I'm not sure with Del Camera if there's a difference, but with Dark, there might be a slight difference, but not quite like like Strong. I, I think that um, some of the, the finer points of, of what make him such a good commentator tend to go away during men's national team games, particularly when you see uh, the sort of performance you did last night, which, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's one of these things where um, Americans and I've complained about this, Chris, and, and we, we I think we did a whole show on this after the U.S. was eliminated from the uh, uh, World Cup qualifying in 2017 you know, for the 2018 World Cup, where uh, American uh, commentators don't necessarily talk tactics and talk about obvious tactical flaws in a way um, that they should. Now, I'm not uh, I, I think last night it was pretty obvious what was going wrong. Um you can blame Greg Berhalter, uh, but at the same time, I've seen Berhalter's teams with Columbus. Uh, they're able to execute the style of play he wants executed without this sort of uh, awful looking performance. I think maybe a lot of it has to do with just the talent level of the United States um, and the fact that Berhalter relied on a lot of foreign players in Columbus. But it was um, it was weird. So I switched to Univision and um, it, 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 that broadcast w w w was pretty good and and and. and uh, very objective. And I also think, um, I, I don't know if this is again, a, uh, uh, uh the way, uh, the, the signals transmitted. I noticed the pictures on Univision coming from Audi Park, Audi field were, uh, were a little crisper than they had been on FS1. That, that's another, yeah, usually uh, they are. yeah, that's another uh, concern about Fox. That, that would be one of the weaknesses though. I, I, I mean, so John Strong definitely, I, I think is, um, one of the best, if not the best commentator in the United States, uh, an Amer American commentator, except when it comes to U.S. men's national team games, except when it comes to Major League Soccer games, because he, he, it, it's difficult though. So most commentators will try to play it right down the middle. Will try to, to make sure that they they don't seem too biased. You I mean that they, they seem that they're very objective, and it's usually the role of the co-commentator to come in with the, those uh, expert. Uh, opinions and and, and uh, observations, and they're the ones that are more kind of um, making some really cutting remarks in in regards to what they've seen in front of their eyes, uh, opening up our view in terms of some of the things that may, maybe we don't see or we don't think about, just elevating the game. So John Strong's in a difficult role because you know I mean you, you can tell that it's it's weighing on on him in terms of how bad the U.S. is performing. Um, but really, to me, it's more Stu Holden that should be coming in. And he, he didn't have that many punches. You could tell 
that Stu had was disappointed with the performance and and towards the end of the game I think it was just saying like there's really not much to say about this there was re- very little chances created very little anything of interest that you can say that the US did well in this area or this attack was good or whatever it may be but I think in this particular case if you if you did have an Ian Dark and a Taylor Twelman it would have been a completely different broadcast. Now, Ian Dark's one of the very, very few commentators uh, that does does sway into into the criticism, uh, does get into that a little bit more, but in more of a conversational manner. So, you mean during a uh, like a slow ebb of the game, if it, if it was on ESPN, you can hear, you can imagine hearing Ian Dark talking about this is really a very disappointing performance. You mean, you mean Taylor? What do you think? Like, what 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 can they do better? And Twelman's the guy who would come in really, really hard and say, "Okay, this is you know, atrocious. This this is horrible. We're so far off, off the path that you know, so on and so forth. Whatever he would say." And that's lacking on the Fox side. Now, my concern in this game, watching this game, which, which it's a meaningless friendly, it's a ramp up, it's you mean, trying a different formation. So I wasn't so concerned about the actual scoreline itself. But to me, the two biggest issues I had was, one, this does not get me any more excited about the Gold Cup than I was before, which before I wasn't excited. This makes me even less excited about the Gold Cup. But second of all, I think this hurts the U.S. women's national team because right after this game between USA and Jamaica, they had, uh, I guess, a, a preview show uh, about the Women's World Cup and about the U.S. women's national team. And I think uh, probably many of the listeners, like me, after that U.S. Jamaica ga- USA Jamaica game, switched off the TV. It was like, okay, forget that. I mean, I'm going to w- watch something else or call it call it a night. But having the U.S. men's national team joined at the hip in many ways with the U.S. women's team actually makes the U.S. women's team, it, it's, it give, give, I don't know, it just doesn't get me excited about the U.S. women's team because of uh, how, how poor the, the men are doing. Having said that, though, too, the men are doing so poorly that you know, I think all, all of us are hoping that the U.S. women's national team can actually raise the bar, get us excited again about U.S. soccer, about the national team. Uh, and, and if it's on the women's side, you mean more power to them. That'll be fantastic. But but to me, I walked away from this broadcast thinking, that, feeling very dejected, feeling very down on the on the Gold Cup, and also have, having no interest in watching the, um, the U.S. Women, women's, women's national team uh, broadcast that happened right after this game. And I'm sure if the U.S. had put in a good performance against Jamaica, maybe uh, shown some positivity, that probably more viewers would have tuned in or continued watching the U.S. women's national team preview that they did for uh, the Women's World Cup. See, it's, it's really hard to tell, Chris. I, I think it could go one of two ways. I mean, I, 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 there are a lot of people who I talk to, um, just, you know, big U.S. fans, uh, uh, men who are just like, oh, at least we have the women. I can't wait for the World Cup this summer because they don't want to uh, um, to think about this men's program. Although I, uh, we, we, we were saying this uh, a couple of days after the U.S. pulled a shock result of the U-20 World Cup. Yeah, that's not the senior team, but that uh, Big River France, which I'm sure we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, uh, does inject some hope into uh, the U.S. men's program. But there are just a lot of uh, people who've said that to me. Oh, my gosh, I've never been so excited for the Women's World Cup, even though this, at least in theory, and we're going to talk to Caitlin Murray uh, in a little bit, this is a more competitive World Cup 
Um, and the U.S. Want, uh, did not win some less competitive World Cups in the 2000s, right? 2003 and 2007 got to the final in 11 and, and got beat uh, by Japan in, in a dramatic game. But um, this is a more competitive World Cup than any World Cup we've had at the women's level. Yet so many U.S. fans I talked to, Chris, are excited. And part of that excitement has to do with um, the men's team. Now, where I do think there is a definite drag is on the Gold Cup. I quite frankly think the combination of the U.S.'s um, – just the, the malaise around the U.S. men's program, uh, the continued lingering effects of, of, of the selection of, uh, of Greg Berhalter, who, who might be the right guy. I mean, I've said some favorable things about him, but I think everybody believes the process to get to him was flawed and that was what you would call an inside job. And now uh, with the backdrop of Tab Ramos, who a lot of people had wanted for the job uh, but wasn't even interviewed, um, getting the U-20s again, uh, third successive quarterfinal at the U-20 level. U.S. is the only country in the world to do that, by the way. Um, there are more questions being asked. Where I think it's going to make a difference is for Fox's Fox and Telemundo's Gold Cup. Uh, or sorry, Top Fox and Univision's Gold Cup. Uh, it, it's a um, I think it's a definite drag on that tournament because at the same time you have the Women's World Cup going on, um, which everyone's going to be focused on Fox and Telemundo, and then you've got Copa America going on, which casual soccer fans who might be cheering on the U.S. women during the day they don't really want to watch. Uh, more of this 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 nonsense from the U.S. men or what they perceive as nonsense, and they're going to turn on uh, the stars of South America on Telemundo and on ESPN Plus. So uh, it, 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 it's it's a little bit of uh, um, a trade off for Fox because they've got both the Women's World Cup and the Gold Cup. I think there's more enthusiasm about the Women's World Cup because of the failings of the U.S. men's team, but it is going to hurt their um, their Gold Cup ratings. That is is my thinking. Yeah, that, that was the thing at halftime, too, of the uh, U.S.-Jamaica uh, game, too. There was a, a, a promo, an ad for an uh, upcoming uh, uh, USA Gold Cup game against uh, Guyana. And nothing against n- – n- no offense against Gu- Guyana, but it, it's hard for me to get excited about even the opponents, too. So, uh, yeah, it's not going to be until probably, what, the quarterfinal stage or the semifinal stage where that tournament becomes really more important and, and more you – mean, a must-see event. The earlier rounds of those games are going to be. I mean, what's what's the benefit of watching those games? And unless you're a hardcore U.S. men's national team uh, supporter, um, one more thing too about um, about this coverage too, Kartik, is that uh, actually look, leading into the Women's World Cup is I'm excited about this tournament. I'm really excited about uh, watching. You mean from Friday onwards? You mean the, the games, opening ceremony, etc. The feeling I'm getting, though, Kartik, is that just in talking to just casual sports fans, even soccer moms, etc., is that most people aren't excited about the Women's World Cup until Tuesday when the U.S. Women's National Team begins. And, and to many people, I believe, that's really when the, US, when the, when the when Women's World Cup will begin, is, is on Tuesday. So it, FIFA, in terms of the draw and the schedule... It actually hurts the Women's World Cup in that, uh, well, you got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. you got like four, four days of games where the U.S. women are not involved. And then, and then on, on the Tuesday, they are. So that's going to take away, I think, from the uh, – I mean, if the U.S. was playing on a Saturday opening game – uh, I think that would bring the viewers in a lot faster. So I'm sure that's something in the back of the minds of, of Fox and, and Telemundo, what they're thinking in terms of, man, if only the U.S. women were actually playing sooner in this tournament to pull people in. Now, Kartik, in terms of uh, other games from this past weekend, you mentioned the U.S. Uh, 
the US uh, under 20 team uh, and the victory against France. Um, what, were, what, what was your take on this one in terms of uh, the coverage and, and uh, the, the match itself? Yeah, um, the Fox Sports app at first, uh, it gave me all kinds of trouble to log in. Um, and, and I was quite panicky at the office because uh, um, I, and this was a weird thing because I think a lot of people were logging in on their phones. Uh, I was logging in on my iPad. They were not having the trouble I was having. Uh, in fact, someone logged into Fox Sports Go on their computer at the office to watch the game. No problem. So I was thinking, yeah, maybe I'll just have to watch the game with him. But uh, I ended up getting it up on my iPad. So I could stay at my uh, at my desk. It, it was um, it was Keith Costigan and Moa Du have developed the chemistry during this tournament, and I think uh, we've talked about it in, in, in relative to Turner's coverage of the uh, Champions League. How Moa Du has improved as a studio presence through that se- through the season. He's also improved as a co commentator. Keith Costigan, I think, is the best guy Fox has. Um, yeah, it's funny. We're just talking about John Strong's Portland connections. Keith Costigan's got Portland connections also. We're going to talk to Caitlin Murray later in the show, who's, uh, of course, from Portland. Um, but uh, Costigan and, and Adu were really good during this match. And it was a it was a back and forth dramatic match. Um, there are a lot of things that Moa Adu um, pointed out tactically in this match um, that you don't necessarily get point get pointed out during your coverage of U.S. men's national team matches on Fox. Now, again, those were friendlies. We're going into a Gold Cup. The U.S. hasn't had a competitive match. Uh, I haven't watched a competitive U.S. match on Fox in over two years because I switched to Univision during the qualifying because of the the, the propaganda uh, value I thought of the Fox coverage and 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 uh, uh, was unfortunately proven correct when the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup, right? right. And uh, the diluted the, the diluted analysis on Fox had proven to be completely misguided. Um, but I thought I thought Adu was really good in in, in talking about. Um, how the U.S. had to had to work to negate France's advantages, and also um, how in the, in the the large portions of the game where France was on top, why they were on top, and, and Costigan is is very good. Uh, this provides a, a bit of a dilemma for Fox now. Um, they are. Um, they are all in on Women's World Cup coverage. They've got a number of matches on, obviously, uh, on Saturday on on Big Fox. Yet the U.S. is playing in the quarterfinals, and I doubt it will either be on FS1 or FS2. I think it's on FS1 uh, against Ecuador, but it will be running concurrent, more or less, with, with, with one of those Women's World Cup games, which is on Big Fox. Um, it's a good dilemma to have. I think for Fox, but uh, they, I, I don't think anyone was quite expecting uh, I, uh, this U.S. run. I know there had been a lot of hype about this U.S. U-20 team before the World Cup, uh, uh, U-20 World Cup. I didn't really buy into it because I just don't with the U.S. anymore. I watched the first game against Ukraine, who I think is one of the favorites to win the tournament. The U.S. loses, Chris, but I, I walk away, and I, I think we may have talked about this on this podcast last week. Uh, uh, no, sorry, that match was on was – on, uh, yeah, yeah, we did talk about it on this podcast last week. Uh, I walk away from that match thinking, yeah, you know, the U.S. played well against who I consider one of the favorites, one of the top European youth teams, uh, one of the favorites in the tournament. They're probably going to be pretty good if they get a good draw. And sure enough, they, they haven't lost since then. They haven't drawn since then. So, um, so far, so good. So, so a few things there. So the uh, the USA against uh, Ecuador quarterfinal U20 World Cup, it'll be on FS2 on Saturday, I think at 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. So that's one of the events 
advantages, I guess, of, of Fox on the weekends, uh, especially for the Women's World Cup, having a lot of the games on uh, Big Fox over the Air Fox and FS1 is that they do have uh, the opportunity to put some of those games on FS2. Now, this this France against USA game, I have to admit, Kartik, this, this is embarrassing in, in a way. But so for the last two years, I've been a cord cutter. Still, still am. I mean, definitely 100% cord cutting. But my community where I live um, just did a deal with Comcast where they offer each of the residents free cable. So against my wishes, <laughs> my wife said, OK, let's go ahead and sign up for this free cable. I mean, it, what the heck? It's, it's free. Let's get it installed. So we got it installed. So for the France against the USA game, I thought, OK, let me just sit down on, on the couch and then we watch this game and uh, switched on Comcast, switched on FS2 started watching the game and i'm like this looks horrible it's, it's in uh, sd it's not a- hd I, the last two years i've been just uh i guess in many ways uh, spoiled by by watching a lot of the fox coverage especially on fs2 or whether it's being sports or whatever channel it is in hd through fubo and it's been so long that i've actually watched a fs2 game uh in sd that i was like man this this looks absolutely horrible but but the game itself yeah uh Great win by the United States, and uh, Modu is getting better with each match. Uh, that's that's good to see, and I think uh, I think he's come a long way. I think I think the actual the actual UEFA Champions League coverage and analysis has helped him and helped his confidence. And then teaming up with Keith Costigan, who who's a you mean a, a consummate uh, professional, uh, both of them did a good job in in that regard. Uh, Chris, that's a, just a great point about FS2 that we often forget. We see the numbers now up to about 66 million it's in, or, or so households, but so many of those are still in SD, whereas when you uh, look at the number for FS1, NBCSN, ESPN, TNT, whatever uh, channel shows soccer other than uh, FS2, they're generally all in HD. So that's, that's a great point. I, didn't, I, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, I, know so, I know a couple other people who have Comcast who have FS2 in HD, and are forced to uh, feel like they're probably better off logging in online and watching games or just skipping them. Now, we have to turn to the UEFA Champions League final, uh, which was uh, shown live on TNT as well as Univision and Univision Deportes. And Kartik, throughout this entire season, we've probably covered um, TNT's coverage of the Champions League as well as, well as Univision more than any other out- broadcast outlet there, uh, both in spoken word and in written word. Uh, we've interviewed their executives. We've interviewed, I think, Stu Holden. Uh, we've had FAQs. We've had tons of information out there and analysis about their coverage. And, and, and overall, over the course of the season, up, up until the uh, Champions League final, uh, not including the Champions League final, it, it had been a rocky road, um, starting off strong in terms of just a kind of a bre- breath of fresh air presentation in terms of the way that they covered uh, the Champions League in, in, I think, the group stage, actually before the qualifica- qualification stage back in August, I believe. Um, then some really bad mistakes, just some really awkward uh, transitions between the two studios, um, uh, on this podcast, I mean, also the listeners to uh, inputting their feedback, but uh, a lot of it, uh, us giving our recommendations, our analysis, and over the course of the season, it had improved. And then, I mean, usually a couple of weeks later, then they would make I mean, some other mistakes, or they'd have uh, Stu Holden and Steve Nash commentating a game from Barcelona, doing the commentary, which was absolutely horrible, uh, so on and so forth. So, building up to the Champions League final, 
I was optimistic because they had uh, a lot of the uh, issues that they had uh, before that they had corrected. Uh, they had re- uh, reverted to a one studio format, which was much better in terms of communication, in terms of just the flow, uh, rather than going back from uh, Atlanta to Los Angeles and back and forth. So again, going into the UEFA Champions League final, my hopes, I, I thought that they had it. I thought that, okay, here we go. This is going to be pretty simple. I mean, just don't, don't do anything too crazy. Just, just keep it simple. Keep on doing what you're doing. And then all of a sudden, for the UEFA Champions League final, they threw all that stuff out the window and said, okay, let, let's mix things up. Let's change things completely. And what a disaster. What an absolute dis- a disaster this UEFA Champions League final was. And for all the hard work that they have done all season long, trying different things, learning, I think they just screwed it up completely on the final. And it leaves a bitter taste in a lot of soccer fans' um, mouths in terms of, I mean, that's the lasting impression of UEFA Champions League uh, season is that last final when they could have come out with a really strong effort. It, it, it was dismal. Kartik, specifically, were there certain things in that broadcast that uh, you looked at and thought, okay, what the heck are they doing? Yeah, so um, I, I only got to see about 20 minutes of the TNT broadcast or, or listened to it because I had a Miami FC game and I wanted to be in position at three so I could watch the game. So left uh, my house around 1.50 Eastern time. But that first 20 minutes, uh, I sat through Trey Young. I sat through Steve Kerr. I sat through some other basketball uh, thing. I, I didn't see any uh, – um, see any analysis whatsoever and then um as i'm driving south from from fort lauderdale area from from Broward county to, to to the miami area i i'm getting uh, all these uh, text messages about uh, how bad tnt is this isn't an nba pregame show um yeah obviously we should you should be watching the game on univision blah 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 um I did not know about the snafu with the BT broadcast versus the international feed until uh, later that night. Because, again, I, I was not listening. I, I was then just watching the game without commentary. Uh, that that seems a, a, a very uh, unforgivable production snafu. So all in all, I, I guess uh, pretty bad. And then uh, uh, the watch the postgame show. When I uh, 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 that later that night, Saturday night, after got home from the Miami FC match, and it was uh, I think somewhat embarrassing. I mean, uh, Fox uh, Fox had at least a, a proper way of presenting a trophy ceremony and the aftermath of a match. Uh, maybe that was honed. Maybe we should go back to 2010 and 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 think about Bayern Inter and how Fox handled the aftermath of of, of that. Uh, but uh, and compared directly, but uh, ten years on. Or nine years on, it, it was uh, it was sh- shocking. So uh, yeah, Turner not getting a lot right. Uh, I, I I look at the coverage of the UEFA Nations League from ESPN, where Taylor Twellman and Ian Dark, obviously Ian Dark's based in London, so it's easy enough to get him uh, to Porto. But um, uh, Taylor Twellman has gone to Porto for the matches. Uh, he was fantastic yesterday, by the way. I mentioned that uh, his analysis was he's you know Twellman is is top shelf. Sometimes I wonder if he didn't have an American accent, and if he had another accent, if people would put him in the absolute elite category of co-commentators because when he's on, he's on, and he was seeing that match. 
uh, in a way I think very few commentators would. But I compare that and ESPN's commitment to uh, an event that hasn't necessarily caught on yet, right, Um, in the Nations League. And their willingness to send their top broadcast team there. Uh, they'll do England. Uh, we're taping this on Thursday. They'll do England, Netherlands in person. They're going to do the final uh, in person. Um, to Turner's uh, commitment of uh, you know, kind of you know just flipping feeds on uh, you know at the last minute. I guess sending uh, the studio team, and I guess that was good that the four of them were were uh, uh, in Madrid. I think. As a UEFA rights holder, you get that broadcast position as part of your contract at the final. So I, I think right. they basically had it. It's in the contract, right? I think every broadcaster from around the world gets um, some sort of uh, position mm-hmm. in, in the stadium. That's in their contract. So, so they had to send someone. Uh, but it was just shambolic. Um now, look, uh, we saw Fox's coverage improve a lot uh, from from year one of the Champions League through like year three or four. We've seen lots of improvements uh, in ESPN's MLS coverage through the years. We've seen uh, NBC started hot with the Premier League and they've stayed hot. There are opportunities to improve. We've even seen like uh, BN go from being somewhat clunky in year one when they launched the network here in the U.S. with with La Liga and Serie A and Liga A to being at the top of their game within three or four years. So there is hope for Turner. Chris, it's just – there seems to be at times this season – this is why I think I'm really frustrated and you are too. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I sense the same thing. That there have been glimmers throughout the course of this Champions League campaign where we think, ah, they finally got it. That was a crisp pregame show. That was a crisp studio uh, show. That was a great uh, match day. And then they'll come back for the next match day two weeks later and it'll be back to this kind of chaotic, uh, rather worthless uh, coverage. So – I don't know. They have yeah. a summer to reboot it, rethink it. Well, the challenge that they, that they have now is that uh, most soccer fans, if you ask most soccer fans in the United States about TNT's coverage, it, it's negative. I mean, so for them to regain that faith and trust and to change that behavior or to change that uh, thinking, it could take a whole other season. Even if they're, they're doing it at the top of their game, it could take a long time to change that first impression. From this coverage of the UEFA Champions League final, it almost felt like they said at the last minute, OK, take, let's take our normal producer of, of the Champions League and uh, let's, let's have him do something else. We're going to bring somebody new in to do this completely different. It almost felt like that or that, that, that the producer that they're using um, had a lot of pressure on him. And they said, OK, guys, you've got to change things around. You've got to focus more on basketball. You're going to do this and this and, and changed his thinking because... What we saw was absolutely horrible. Some specifics. I mean, I mean, the pre-match coverage. It really should have been renamed from BR football to BR basketball. Um, I'm not a basketball fan. I'm a soccer fan. So when I'm coming into this coverage to watch UEFA Champions League final, I'm expecting analysis from soccer people, people that know the game inside and out. I'm not anticipating all these tie-ins to basketball. I think basketball, NBA. By itself, even without soccer, is fine. I mean, it's 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 thriving. Um, TNT doesn't need to go ahead and kind of, you I mean, basically cherry pick things out of the UEFA Champions League to to try to um, pull over soccer fans into the bas- basketball to to improve ratings there. Uh, that was really really po- uh, poorly done. The change of commentators, starting with BT in the first half with uh, Darren Fletcher. 
And I didn't catch who the, the co-commentator was at first. I'm like, who is that? That sounds familiar. And after a while, I figured out it was, it was Steve McBannerman. And uh, Macca paired with Darren Fletcher uh, was nowhere dear Macca paired with Ian Dark. The chemistry wasn't quite there. Um, and Macca, it, it didn't sound like Macca. It, it sounded like Macca, the, the voice, but did not sound like him, the usual, what we're used to hearing um, on American television when he did work for ESPN broadcasting the Premier League. But throughout that first half, and then I'm sure the reason that they changed it, but throughout that first half, uh, Darren Fletcher kept on giving promos for BT. Well, coming up after this game, we've got, we got uh, I don't know, a movie coming happening. Or and then a few minutes later, BT's coverage of whatever it would be, I don't know, uh, politics tomorrow. Come back at 12 o'clock for this. So I completely understand why TNT said, OK, all right, second half. Let's switch it to the world feed. Let's have Tony Jones and David Pleat. And, and there we can get some uh, commentary that's not going to be giving plugs for BT Sport. My question is, why go with BT Sport in the beginning if you know that... I mean, it, it, usually Fox had done that in the past before, but they would mute it whenever the actual commentators would be talking about Sky Sports coming up this weekend or whatever it would be. They would mute it. So we would never actually hear that on American television. In this case, they didn't mute any of it. Then there was the halftime analysis uh, where all season long, Stuart Holden has been doing tremendous work uh, on the big, huge TV screens or on the table with his tactical analysis and, and oftentimes lately with Moadu in terms of, okay, let's look at the formation, let's look at the matchups, who's going to be moving here, how does this change the, the, the game? And for the halftime for that analysis, they used a whiteboard and it looked like it looked so hokey. It looked so cheap. It looked so amateur uh, on a UEFA Champions League broadcast at halftime. Having, I mean, if, if you don't have access to a big screen TV or it's not going to work, don't go to a whiteboard. No matter how great the analysis is, it makes Stu Holden and TNT look look amateur. Last but not least, actually two more things. Last but not least, two more things. One is, I don't know what Stu Holden was thinking, but wearing a green jacket was so distracting. Uh, it looked like he should have been at the Masters golf tournament, but it, it was it was comical. It's like, you mean, you mean obviously there's somebody, the producer should be saying like, hey, you mean, no, 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 let's, let's kind of tone that down a little bit. Let's kind of wear something a little bit more neutral. We don't need you to be wearing a green jacket, uh, being the center of focus, when, when the center of focus really should be the pre- presenter, and the presenter you mean, goes over and talks to uh, the actual analyst. And then David Pleat, we've talked about in the past before. A lot of people love him. A lot of people hate him. Um, I'm I'm okay with him. I'm not a fan of his by any means, but but uh, I appreciate what he's given to the game. But typical David Pleat, Origi scores the the late goal, and there he goes, David Pleat uh, calling him Origo. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, <laughs> this is absolutely abysmal. I mean, the BT thing didn't work out. The world feeds having David Pleat for the semi final, I believe it was, and and for the final is uh, some poor decision-making there by uh, uh, probably IMG, I would believe it would be. But uh, overall, really, really poor stuff. I'll I'll read a comment from one of the listeners. Greg, uh, uh, you'll never walk alone. Uh, Half hour into the pre-match show, and we have seen a five-minute cartoon and a silly Trey Young feature. Lineups have been in for both teams and not shown or discussed. They did say Kane starts. And then uh, Kate Abdo says, we will talk about li- li- lineups later in the show. Terrible. 
And that should be the most uh, important information. That should be as soon as those uh, those uh, uh, actual lineups are announced. That's that's almost breaking news. Okay, all right. Let's interrupt uh, this for a second. Okay, lineups are in, and, and in some ways, in many ways, the Liverpool lineup was very predictable. The Spurs one, the question about whether Kane starts or not, I guess Kate mentioned it, but that that's important news. That's that's showing the priority priority to these teams and to this occasion rather than just talking on and on about about nonsense. But overall, if I had to rate it, I'd probably give it a D minus. I was just really, really disappointed with TNT, and I thought they could have done much, much better. And it's going to take a long time and a long amount of effort to change people's opinions now about TNT. They really screwed it up. Yeah, a couple quick points, uh, Chris, on this one. I think uh, there are a lot of fans who are who think that, uh, and I know the, the the motivation for pushing Bleacher Report and the BR Live product and, and Bleacher Report in general, uh, but feel like uh, the Turner executives, uh, and, and there might be some serious changes at Turner, by the way, uh, in terms of Turner Sports because of the AT&T uh, purchase of Time Warner and new executives, et cetera. So maybe things will change. But that there's a demeaning quality to, 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 to kind of relegating it to, to BR and BR Live when they don't t- they don't do that with their NBA coverage. They don't do that with their NCAA tournament coverage. Yes, they plug those things, but they don't necessarily push it as a, as a BR Live thing. Uh, secondly, I think the NBA thing is all about an insecurity among American broadcasters that have to kind of show some sort of relevance of soccer, uh, relevance of international football uh, to an Americanized audience. So they feel like Fox did this with the NFL. And I, and I have to say the synergies between the NBA um, and NBA and soccer and the uh, uh, um, and basketball fans and soccer fans are, are greater than between American football. I mean, most most soccer fans I know in the U.S. can't stand American football. Um, casual sports fans or soccer fans watch American football, but um, there is more crossover with basketball. So, and there are more just a lot. I, I don't want to get into a whole ideological debate, but there's more. Uh, there's more crossover in the fan bases. So Turner decides this is a way of proving some degree of cred, and it's easier with basketball because there probably are more basketball players who are soccer fans. Like the Trey Youngs uh, and like uh, former players like Steve Kerr, they're more. It's a more international sport. It's a more the demographics of the of the type of people who watch the sport are different than American football. Fox tried for years with American football. You know that, Chris, to just push, you know, uh, give soccer some sort of credit by saying, "Oh, Michael Strahan is doing this," and then the pregame show, etc. Um, so I, I understand that. I just think we're way past that, and then. Um, just on that, just real fast, Kartik. I mean, that broadcast of the UEFA Champions League final was not meant for us. It was not meant for soccer right. fans. It, it was meant to be appealing to a whole brand new audience, somebody that's probably maybe maybe watched one Champions League game all season or just turned into that, tuned into that, watching it, hearing like, what's this whole thing about? And appealing to that audience. Now, whether that audience was blown over, uh, blown away by how wonderful the coverage was with all these basketball players talking about how they're soccer fans, um, I, I don't think that that tactic works. I think it's it's uh, it's demeaning. I, I, I don't I don't think it. I mean, maybe it does work. I don't think it does. But to me, it, it, you, you piss off the soccer fans. Um, you talk down to the basketball fans, and I don't think there's many people that are going to say, "Okay, I watched yeah. this, this this final." Now I'm going to watch uh, more uh-huh. soccer now because of, of the connections to, to NBA basketball. 
Yeah, I, I, it has a better chance of working with the NBA than it did with the NFL when Fox tried it because right. there's just more crossover and fans and more similarities. But I don't think it works, right? I, I agree with you. It's just uh, uh, it, it's a flawed strategy. The third thing I would say is about the BT uh, snafu. Fox, on a number of occasions, and again, I probably watch more Bundesliga than most of our listeners, on a number of occasions has taken the BT feed for the Bundesliga. And what they've done is they haven't been able to mute out Owen Hargreave saying, uh, hey, you know, uh, this match is on BT or this event is on BT Sport coming up. But what they have done is the promos, the graphical promos for BT have never appeared on Fox. And my understanding is they did on TNT. I, I didn't see them. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's just the commentary, I believe. Yeah. Um, now it was it, it, obviously a, a random Bundesliga match taking place on a Friday or a Saturday. It's a lot less intrusive and a lot less aggressive the, the BT promotions than during a Champions League final, which for BT Sport is one of their showcase events of the year, and they're going to be pushing their other programming. That's why it was a, a such a flawed decision on the David Pleat thing. Yeah, I, I find that um, I find that odd. Uh, that he uh, that he got both the semi semifinal and the final. Uh, oh, and sorry, in the Europa League final as well. That's the, uh, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, to me quite um, quite interesting because we haven't heard as much of his voice on Premier League broadcasts or FA Cup, League Cup broadcasts in the last few years. It's, it, um, it, it's puzzling because it's almost as if like, okay, uh, who's available? Who's left? It's almost like, I mean, in terms of the list of uh, co-commentators, I would put them near the bottom, definitely the bottom half of ones that I would consider hiring. So it's almost as if like, whether it's IMG or, or the, kind of all these different uh, broadcasters, maybe Stuart Robson was working for, for somebody else. Maybe uh, Gary. Well, 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 that specific that specific issue. Okay, so I had this assumption during the week because Stuart Robson was on the ESPN FC set with Dan Thomas and Co in Madrid on location that Stuart Robson was going to be the co-commentator and was very disappointed when I got back and listened to the DVR and it wasn't him in either half. So um, I don't know if he was committed to someone else. He was in Madrid for sure. Yeah, and that's the thing about David Pleat. He reminds me of your anyone's elderly grandfather. I mean, it really seems to be a nice person, uh, has a lot of history in the game, someone I have a lot of respect for as a manager, uh, and and with a lot of knowledge of the game, but forgets things. He means very forgetful and very talkative, very very talkative, talking over uh, the, co- the the actual commentator. And for me, on a pedestal of the UEFA Champions League final and the Europa League final, he's near the bottom of the list of people I would pick. I, I just wonder how few people were available. I mean, other alternatives. There's so many people out there that they could have picked that would have been much, much better, a lot more consistent and uh, a lot more knowledgeable about players' names and and so forth. But, um, yeah, not a good look, unfortunately. And and that's something that TNT should bring up with UEFA. I'm sure they'll have meetings uh, over the summer getting ready for the next season is that the quality of the world feeds. Usually it's been great all season long, except... I mean, in two of the biggest finals of, of the competitions that they're paying, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars for, uh, you have a commentator that, that's not up to snuff. All right, uh, co-commentator, I mean. All right, TV streaming news contact. Let's move on to um, some interesting news from around the United States and the world. 
Yeah, so there's been talk of uh, reports of an NWSL TV deal that's in the works and will be announced soon. I've heard various rumors, but um, nothing has been announced. Maybe they take advantage of the, of the surge in interest from the Women's World Cup and, and get back on television. They've been dark this year since uh, the termination of their deal with Lifetime Dark in terms of uh, 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 linear uh, television. Uh, NWSL is a league with a lot of issues. They have an operations uh, issue uh, that, that will have to be resolved uh, operations contract will have to be resolved this year also so uh we'll see uh what happens with that but stay tuned yeah i guess with that one too i mean in terms in terms of timing i mean everyone everyone of, of course hoping that the u.s women's national team uh does well and hopefully goes all the way but um that has such an impact on this tv deal and i'm sure that the, they've had discussions with a lot of different tv providers and um hoping that the timing of this deal will, will be uh, perfect with the U.S. women's national team and hopefully the success that they have. Uh, this, could, this could make a break, break, break the league in terms of uh, uh, the future longevity. Now, next up, uh, the next two Club World Cup tournaments have been confirmed for Qatar in December 2019 and December 2020. The Club World Cup will have seven competing teams, six continental champions and a team from the host nation. After Qatar uh, hosts the final two editions of the tournament in its present format, FIFA will revamp it to include 24 teams. And and that's a whole bunch of controversy too about uh, a lot of the teams from Europe uh, being opposed to that. So uh, FIFA will have to cross that bridge later. But in terms of the coverage of the Club World Cup, um, that'll be on Fox Sports and Telemundo Deportes. Uh, and the De- December 2019 one will feature Liverpool um, among the teams. IMG has announced its appointment as the exclusive global licensing representative for the Bundesliga. This follows a simple, uh, similar agreement they have with Serie A, which has uh, uh, how Serie A, by the way, got to ESPN Plus, if, if you're wondering. Yeah, that's good news for the Bundesliga in terms of having a, uh, a broker uh, effectively uh, go ahead and try to sell uh, the Bundesliga rights. So we know that, of course, uh, we're getting ready for the 2019-2020 season. That will be the final season under the current rights deal, uh, most of which is owned by Fox Sports globally. Most, not all. Uh, in the United States, of course, uh, Fox Sports has the rights for one more season. And then who does it go to? We had, In last week's podcast, we went in, into a lot of detail in terms of the options out there for both the La Liga and the Bundesliga. So uh, definitely listen to that uh, previous episode if you want to get our thoughts on that. Last but not least, uh, in terms of some, some news too, uh, I think we mentioned a little bit about this, uh, I think last week or the week before, but uh, some additional news. So Univision Deportes has the rights to the Gold Cup. Uh, this summer uh, in Spanish language and uh, they've confirmed that all 31 Gold Cup matches are going to air live across Univision, Unamas and Univision <coughs> Deportes Network so um, they're coming out really strong uh, Univision and Unamas are both uh, free to free to air um, television stations and Univision Deportes Network on uh, most cable and satellite uh, networks so a big statement there from uh, Univision and uh, if you do a uh, do want to watch the Gold Cup? Uh, I mean, really, I mean, Univision is going to have a lot more coverage um, on over-the-air channels than than Fox Sports um, uh, for that tournament. Now, moving on to TV ratings, and we teased this in the opening of the show, but um, 
some big numbers that came out. Interesting numbers this this week, Kartik, from uh, some of the games. But uh, we have to look at the UEFA Champions League final first and foremost. Uh, collectively across TNT, Univision, and Univision Deportes, uh, 2.9 million viewers um, for TNT specifically. That was uh, the most watched Uni- uh, UEFA Champions League final on cable television in the United States ever. Uh, the the Univision number was d- disappointing to some to some extent. I mean, 1.4 million is definitely good, but um, I'm sure if it was uh, Barcelona against Ajax, that number might have been double the size. And um, but overall, Liverpool Spurs 2.9 million there. And then we had uh, the Europa League final on TNT, Chelsea against Arsenal. Uh, that was on that Wednesday, three to five Eastern time. So that one on on TNT had uh, 413,000 viewers, so pretty decent. And last but not least, um, last Saturday's game between Portland uh, in the opening of uh, the reopening of their stadium against the LAFC. This was on ESPN2 on Saturday night from 10.30 Eastern to uh, 12.30 a.m. Eastern. That one had 189,000 viewers there. All right, Kartik, so coming up right now, we've got uh, an interview with Caitlin Murray, uh, who you had a chance to speak with this week about her new book, which is called The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. So uh, give us a quick quick uh, take on what we can expect to listen to in this interview before we go on to the listener mailbag. We're going to talk a lot about how the U.S. women were pioneers, the obstacles they overcame. There's a lot of that in this book, uh, as well as uh, the TV aspects around uh, watching uh, the Women's World Cup of 99. And 1999 is such a pinnacle moment in, in, in the evolution of the sport in this country. I think in the men's game as well. I think the U.S. women uh, winning that World Cup uh, with these record audiences on ABC really <clears> – <throat> excuse me, push soccer into the 21st century in a way that maybe was unimaginable even three or four years earlier, even when the U.S. hosted the Men's World Cup, because there was very little staying power from that in terms of general interest in the sport. But uh, there was a sustainable interest after the 99 World Cups. So we talk about that. We talk about the struggles that the U.S. women overcame uh, with equality issues that still um, face with equality issues. Uh, it's a fascinating book, highly recommended. And there's a review from Robert Hay on our website of the book. And um, here's my interview with Caitlin. So, Caitlin, uh, we've reviewed your book at World Soccer Talk. Robert Hay has an excellent review of your book, so our listeners should check that out uh, first and foremost. But what was the most interesting lesson you learned from this book? You know, it's very uh, in the news right now, the talk of equal pay and the players fighting with the Federation. And I guess I didn't realize that that had been going on for so long and that was something that behind the scenes had been such a part of the team's history. Um, when I started working on this book, I didn't really necessarily have preconceived notions of what the book was going to be. I wanted to make sure I did a bunch of interviews, a lot of original reporting, spoke to you know players, coaches, people U.S. soccer. And what I discovered is that Really, all of this the stuff that we're hearing about now, equal pay, fighting with the Federation, that has been going on for essentially as long as the team has existed. And there are a lot of things behind the scenes with the players boycotting or getting close to boycotting or um, not 
being willing to play in the NWSL and, um, you know, boycotting the league and, um, you know, Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy sitting in a conference room and telling off the president of U.S. soccer, all those sorts of things. I didn't really know that history. And I did a lot of research of, you know, digging through old news clips and finding what the coverage was like at the time. And a lot of the stuff just happened behind the scenes without anyone really knowing about it. Um, you know, Kate Margraff, when she got pregnant, she was kicked off the team. And it was a big back and forth about pregnancy discrimination. And it was a big issue that now we know that when players get pregnant, there's a clause in the CBA that uh, ensures they'll have a chance to win their spot back. I knew that. I didn't know that it came from this sort of back and forth with the Federation. And it involved a player having to stand up and fight for herself. So I think that was the thing that I really took away from this. Um, I mean, the book is obviously definitely about soccer, and I talk about all the tournaments and what went on, you know, in the locker rooms. But for me, it was the stuff in the boardrooms that I found just really fascinating and didn't know that much about going into it. You, you, you talk a lot about the previous controversies involving uh, the women's team and having to fight for any sense of equality. I mean, they're still not there, obviously, but uh, and, and we still have issues of, of uh, matches on turf, a disproportionate number of matches on turf, which the women have to play, among other issues. But um, the disputes in the 80s and 90s and then leading into the mid-2000s, which I think most of our listeners probably remember that particular uh, dispute when the Federation wanted the women to go dark, essentially. Actually, um, for uh, a period of time in terms of, uh, of, of friendlies, etc., uh, in between tournaments. The, the, the big um, question I have about you know, some, of, some of your research and your conversations were a lot of the women feel like they uh, had this heavy burden that this was a cause that extended beyond them. It wasn't just about them. It wasn't just about their U.S. women's national team, but it was about equality in general in this sport, uh, which is a long way off from equality and in society in general. Absolutely, 100%. I think if the players had gone into some of these situations thinking that it was about them, that they wouldn't have achieved any of the things that they achieved. Because what we saw over the years, and what I talk about a lot in my book, was that the players banded together, and they only achieved these, you know, these steps forward, this progress, by working together and sort of seeing it as bigger than any one player, any one team. It was really about the sport as a whole. Um, something I talk about uh, in my book is that U.S. soccer, uh, when there was a dispute going on, U.S. soccer said, okay, we're just going to send a youth team to this. Uh, there, was, there was some sort of tournament in Australia. And the players were in a fight with U.S. soccer, so the Federation said, all right, we're going to send the U-20 team to this tournament. And the players realized that if that's what U.S. soccer is going to do, if they're just going to send youth players, we will never have any leverage. Um, so they started the sort of like phone tree type situation where senior players were calling all the players on the youth teams. Um, I think at the time it was, I want to say there was a U20 team and then like a U16 team. I, I don't remember the exact structure, but they essentially, the senior players called all of the youth teams, had players and their parents on a big conference call, 
and talked them through why everyone needs to decline a call-up for U.S. soccer. And the youth players, they could have pushed back on it and said, this is a big opportunity for me. I'm going to play for the senior national team. I'm going to get to go um, overseas and play in a tournament. But instead, there was absolutely no pushback. All the youth players were on board. They saw the bigger vision of what the team was fighting for. And that was the only reason that the players essentially won that dispute with U.S. soccer. And we've seen the players uh, unite in similar ways since then. And that actually turned into the blueprint for the USA women's hockey team. They did the exact same thing because they went to Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm and those players and asked them, hey, how did you guys deal with U.S. soccer? How did you get what you did? And they kind of copied that blueprint. So for the players, it's it was always about the team as a whole. Uh, Mia Hamm was the biggest star of the team, but she always wanted to make sure the rest of the team was included in any sort of you know, benefits that she was getting. So that's really been um, sort of a defining characteristic of the team, and I think we still see that today. Yeah, the, se- the sense of unity, I think, that the U.S. women have had, you know, with a, with a couple of exceptions. I mean, I think the 2007 World Cup stands out as the exception. Any, yeah, anything with hope solo. Right, right. Uh, I was trying to say that a little more subtly, but yes, uh, I, with the exception of, of those sort of things, has been awe-inspiring. I think for people uh, around around the, the game, around the sport, and you know, in society in general. Uh, 1999, such an important moment, and it's often forgotten. The U.S. had lost, had won the World Cup in 1991, the first ever Women's World Cup, but uh, 1999. So much changed in terms of the perception of women's soccer, the perception of soccer in general in this country. I think it really helped the men also, quite frankly, winning that World Cup. Also made this sport really kind of a TV property. Um, The 1999 World Cup, and you talk a lot about it in your book, um, those audiences on ABC broke records and then created a context where I think soccer became a real television sport in this country. Yeah, I think something that's interesting about that, I didn't really get into it that much in my book because, I mean, the history of the team is huge and you only have so much time and space to talk about uh, the things that are important. You can't get into everything. Um, But ESPN and ABC, I think, needed to be convinced a little bit in 1999 to air all the games. Um, They were obviously going to air the the final. but there, it wasn't as if ESPN said, oh, yeah, let's definitely air uh, all these women's soccer games. I mean, there, there was a back and forth, and um, there was definitely a discussion to make sure that that happened from the organizing committee. Um, but I think part of it is that in 1996, for the Olympics, when the U.S. won, those games weren't aired live on TV. I think from the gold medal match, it was just a highlights package uh, that NBC aired. And that tournament uh, at the Olympics did get really good attendance. Um, And I think that the TV networks maybe saw that there was a missed opportunity that, you know, with the attendance that it got, clearly there was some sort of interest level. Um, So I do think that 
obviously 99 really changed things because that set a TV rating that lasted until the 2014 Men's World Cup for soccer. So I think um, that obviously was a turning point. Um, But interestingly, I think, you know, after Mia Hamm retired, ratings and attendance really sort of took a nosedive until the 2011 Women's World Cup, which, again, was a really big tournament for the team and a really big deal. Um, It was the most tweeted about sporting event at the time, I believe. So it it hasn't been, um, you know, a straight line upward in terms of the TV ratings and the attention that the team has gotten. But it's definitely clear that 99 really sort of changed the way networks looked at, you know, having women's soccer on their air. So 2011, uh, the, that World Cup, as you mentioned, it was on ESPN, uh, did really good ratings. And Abby Wambach's goal against Brazil, I, I think, was one of the most uh, replayed highlights um, in, in um in history at that point, in, in terms of in that social media era, 2015, we know broke all kinds of records. Um, what um, what are your thoughts about sustainability? Because what we see is there are these bumps in 11, 15, there'll be a bump again now in 19, uh, and sustaining that for our domestic league. WPS uh, collapses after 2011, right? Um, and there were other internal issues. Um, 2015 gave a little bit of a knock-on effect in the NWSL, but not um, not tremendously in terms of, of TV numbers. Although, um, quite honestly, the lifetime numbers at times weren't that bad. Uh, it just wasn't consistent. And then uh, now 2019, what sort of thing do you think needs to happen for there to be a knock-on effect in the domestic league? Is it really about just the personalities and the individuals, or is there more to it? Honestly, I think that it's sort of a given that every time there's a World Cup, the attention and the excitement is going to increase, and there is going to be at least some crossover of people who watch the World Cup who are going to tune into the domestic league and see what it's all about. That's a given. I don't think um, there's really anything that changes that. I think what determines whether or not that bump is enough or if that bump is successful is really the league itself and how it can position itself to capitalize on that. Because, you know, you talked about... WPS and their problem I don't know if it was necessarily a lack of interest they launched that league in the middle of the worst recession that has happened since the Great Depression they scaled back their expectations um, so I think they were more realistic about things but they still had some problems with uh, Dan Borslow who I talk about in my book who you know, was unstable might be a nice way to put it. So he created a lot of pressure on their finances. So I think there are specific reasons we saw WPS got into trouble. I think with the NWSL, the problems that they have, and if there is a failure to capitalize on this World Cup, I don't think it's going to be because, you know, the bump wasn't enough or the attention wasn't enough. Although, you know, if the U.S. got knocked out early, then maybe that's the case. But assuming that the U.S. goes pretty far, I think what's really concerning about the NWSL right now is that their front office seems to consist of one person, and that's Amanda Duffy, the president. They don't have an infrastructure built 
within the front office that is capable of, you know, talking to sponsors and signing sponsorship deals. And, you know, I, I think that they will probably announce a TV deal at some point. But if they had infrastructure set up to negotiate these deals and kind of sell the league, could they get a better TV deal than they're going to get? Um, I think those are sort of open questions. One thing uh, I report in my book is that U.S. Soccer, which is the league operator for the NWSL, their agreement to run the league expires at the end of this year. And in the past, it has expired and it's been renewed. I'm not sure that it's going to be renewed at the end of this year. I think that U.S. Soccer doesn't want to be running a sports league. That's not really what the Federation is set up to do. And I think that the owners in the NWSL would like to be a little more free um, from U.S. Soccer in terms of like some scheduling issues and some other things. So with that sort of in limbo, I don't know if the league can really be set up for you know, capitalizing on something like the World Cup. I think the NWSL has some other things that they need to figure out first. So I I understand what you're saying about, you know, it doesn't seem like that bump has been enough in the past. I would say it's not really about the bump. It's more about what position is the league in at that time? Is the league in a position to really take advantage? So for those of us from South Florida, uh, it's, it's must, a must-read. Well, your book's a must-read anyway, Caitlin. But uh, those of us who uh, lived through the, the Magic Danner, as we call it, and, and went to those games faithfully, which includes, I think, both Chris and I, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's must, a must-read uh, confirms a lot of our suspicions about – I could have written a whole <laughs> – like some of the stories were just so bonkers that – you know, this book is about much more than Dan Borslow, so I couldn't include everything, but I tried to include the best bits. And it's just, it's fascinating to, to hear some of the stuff that went on. Uh, so, Caitlin, where uh, can uh, folks find your book? So the book, uh, The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer, it is on Amazon. It's also actually in Barnes & Noble, uh, most locations around the country. If, um, if people want to see other links, I mean, um, you know, it's on iTunes and all those sorts of things. All the links are at uswntbook.com. Okay, that's uswntbook.com. Caitlin, thank you so much, and uh, enjoy your month in France. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Kartik, thanks for that interview there. Good stuff. All right, next up is Listener Mailbag, and first up is Vincent Orozco. He says, I have a question for you guys about the coverage and the commentary in the build-up to the U.S. Women's uh, World Cup run. They are emphasizing this is the deepest World Cup, which I tend to agree with, and there is no mention of U.S. soccer's failure, in my opinion, to stay ahead of the upcoming countries. Question for you guys. If China would have won the 1999 Women's World Cup, would that ha- have done more for women's soccer globally? Uh, if they're a developing, if uh, if they're a developing country, what would what have won? In my opinion, it would have, uh, I think, helped more undeveloped undeveloped countries accelerate women's soccer because most undeveloped countries would feel they have a chance, therefore spend more resources. That's an interesting interesting opinion there, Kartik. I never thought about that, but. Uh, 
What's your take on that? That's a that's a really interesting opinion. I'm not sure, Vincent, but what I would say is that um, as someone who's been frustrated by seeing how poor and how uncompetitive India has been at the men's level in this sport since the 1940s, and in fact, I think this tournament they had in Qatar, the, the Asian Cup was probably their best tournament that they've ever had at the men's level, major tournament. They didn't even get out of the group, uh, but still, they were competitive, right? They didn't get embarrassed. I've often said, you know what? The Indian Football uh, Federation should just spend their money on, on women's football because it's it, it's a, a smaller pool. It's much easier to compete uh, at that level. In fact, India's ranking in the women's game is in the 50s. In the men's, it's never been above 100. So uh, I, I do subscribe to that to a certain extent. I think it's it's much uh, a much easier path. We've seen Canada as a country that is a first world country, but a developing football nation, if you will, uh, take that path and be very relevant at the women's level. That, that's a great observation. China won that World Cup in the United States. Who knows? Other people would have taken advantage of it. That having been said, I think as far as the U.S. is concerned, I think the 99 World Cup, I, I, I think there's a lot of um, – commercial reasons why the 94 World Cup, men's World Cup being held in the U.S. was more important. But there are a lot of soccer fandom reasons that the 99 World Cup win by the women to me was more important than the U.S. hosting the 94 Men's World Cup. Um, It was also the dramatic nature of how they beat China. And part of it was China being the opponent. If it had been Norway uh, in the final instead, or it had been uh, uh, Sweden, I don't think it quite would have stimulated uh, the, uh, the the passion it did just because of ideological divides and national rivalries, et cetera. That, that's a great question, Vincent. That's, a, that's one of the great historic what's-ifs uh, because uh, we see countries like Thailand, developing countries, do better in the women's game um, than they do in the men's game also. So that's, uh, that's yeah. a really – Really good question, actually. Well, well, for the U.S., definitely it's been transformative, that 1999 win. Um, so many girls uh, these days play in soccer, the youth levels and through college levels, etc. And it's something that uh, if the U.S. had not won that, that 99 uh, World Cup final, it would have set the, set the country back. I think we are where we are today a lot because of that win, which is kind of a building block, and, and then going from there and, and you know, winning more World Cup finals. But it's something that was for the United States transformative, the most, uh, the highest number of viewing numbers for soccer games uh, in the United States is still the last Women's World Cup. I mean, in terms of the there's what 23, 24, 25 million for the final, um, just that massive numbers there too. So it's uh, for us, I know for the U.S., it definitely helped us greatly. Uh, for China, even if they had won, I mean, yes, it would have given other countries hope, but I'm not sure if it would have taken if. China would have been able to t- to to take it off, uh, t- take off from there. The women's game would have taken off from there as much as it has done in the United States, and, and I'm sure it's had a global effect too. Happily Eggs says, uh, "Do you think that the cri- do you think the critical mass for soccer in the states will ever reach the stage where the advertising would allow for more free to air games?" That's a great question too, Happily Eggs. So, her. Uh, so, I mean, you look at the UEFA Champions League final. So you, you look at soccer in general in the United States. Uh, Kartik and I, probably a year ago, had this big uh, debate about uh, whether soccer was growing in the U.S. or not. And if you look at some of the TV ratings, uh, they're, 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 sometimes they're depressing. If you look at um, some of the ratings for, say, MLS games or the decline in U.S. men's national team games. But you look at – if you take all of them combined into a, one big number – uh, there is a massive, a massive critical mass for soccer in the States. It's just very fractured in terms of all the choices available. But will it ever reach a stage where, the, uh, from from an advertising point of view, to allow more free-to-air games? 
And I, I think, uh, I mean, we've seen from TNT that it didn't. We were hoping that maybe that would have been on, on a TBS or you mean, a, kind of a, a bigger channel from the Turner side of things. Uh, I, th- I think in many ways, ESPN, there's a possibility, there's a hope there that in the future, if they do some, acquire some massive rights, such as La Liga, is that they would put some of those games, that those, I mean, El Clasico, if they did acquire the rights on, on an ABC, which is free to air, um, which would be massive advertising opportunities there to a Hispanic audience uh, and an Anglo audience in the United States. So I don't know. What, what do you think on this one, Kartik? Do you have any, any well, well, I think compared to other countries, we're doing okay. We had 32 Premier League games this past season free to air. On NBC, we had three Bundesliga matches, which is, you know, in some years we've had as many as five or six, uh, but uh, three Bundesliga th- matches this season, free to air, including Dortmund, uh, the 5 0 Pyron beating Dortmund, but that was built up um, over a number of weeks as, as a match that was going to be on Big Fox. Uh, we've had a number of MLS games. So I think we've got about 40 matches from cl- uh, club football um, overall on, on free to air, and then uh, most of the Women's World Cup will be free to air. That's uh, in terms of English language. So I think we're doing okay. Um, where um, there, there's the difference, I think, is um, just talking to friends in the UK, they relish the fact that the FA Cup is free to air. Here, it's not not only not free to air, it's not on a cable channel. It's behind a paywall. Yeah. But the flip side is the Premier League, they have no games free to air there. We have, I just mentioned, 32 games. That's almost one a week uh, free to air uh, and on – uh, and it's not on the equivalent of Channel 4 in the UK or Channel 5. It's on uh, the equivalent of being on BBC One, really, when you're on NBC. So uh, it, it is, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think maybe we're valuing different things and putting different things free to air. I'd like to see more, uh, more matches in general on free to air television. I'm di- uh, disappointed that there are fewer games on ABC. ESPN used to put a lot of games on ABC. I don't know that they've had a game on ABC at all since the, the Euro final. Uh, in 2016, I think it's been almost three years now since any there's been any soccer broadcast on ABC. Yeah. Uh, maybe the next year, year 2020, they'll probably show the final on there, but that might be it. So, yeah, I, I think that there, there could be improvement, but we're doing OK in some regards. Part of it, though, too, it is the, the way that the U.S. is structured. So cable television is more prevalent. So, for example, uh, most of my relatives in the U.K., in Wales and England, uh, most of them don't have Sky Sports. They don't have satellite television. They don't have cable television. Uh, they have free-to-air television, so they don't get to watch a lot of the soccer games uh, because they're on Sky Sports. But um, if a, you know, a World Cup final is on BBC, I mean, it's free-to-air. It's more accessible there for them. Um, and if they want to, you mean, watch a game, sometimes they'll just go to the ground. They'll go to Old Trafford or they'll go wherever it may be to watch, watch a match there. In the U.S., it's different. I mean, cable is so prevalent. Um, yes, those numbers are declining, but uh, uh, and then satellite is somewhat prevalent uh, here in, in the United States. Um, but so some of it is cultural differences or technological differences between uh, different countries. But uh, yeah, but going back to what you said, Kartik, too, that's a good point. For the big tournaments, and we've got more free-to-air games for Women's World Cup uh, than ever before, uh, and then also for um, the Gold Cup than ever before, and um, probably Copa America uh, than ever before through through Telemundo. So, oh, I forgot about the Gold Cup. Yeah, yeah. So, so for those big events, um, it's happening. It's just on those uh, club games and club finals where it's, uh, it's more challenging. 
right. and I should point out American television being different is uh, is a big uh, big is an important thing. Several years ago, the NBA. Uh, made a concerted decision that they wanted more games. Uh, they had uh, they wanted to take some games off of broadcast television, free to air television, and put them uh, uh, put them on cable because they were going to get subscriber fees. You know the residuals from subscriber yeah. fees yep. for that. Uh, so there's some of that going on too. Now I think that's changed with the advent of cord cutting, mm-hmm. and maybe the NBA's rethunk that decision. Um, I don't follow the NBA, so I, I don't know what the breakdown is uh, in terms of, of of what's on network television, what's on cable. Anymore. But at one time, the NBA very clearly uh, and identifiably said that, that we had too many games on broadcast television, free-to-air television. Uh, uh, we we're going to pull some of those games away from uh, the rights holders and give it to Turner, uh, our, our cable rights holder. So uh, that's uh, um, th- th- that's something that you have to consider when, um, when you think about American television in general. All right, last last question and or feedback from one of our listeners, and uh, this one could be a whole podcast in itself. So, uh, Sokartik, if you want to answer this one in a concise manner, but it's from Raymond. He says, uh, "Do you think the future of American soccer is going to look like a traditional American pyramid, uh, like they have in Major League Baseball, with thirty to thirty-two uh, team division and conference playoffs, hundreds of minor league affiliate affiliate teams?" scattered throughout the United States and Canada, as well as having a spending policy like uh, Major League Baseball with top teams being able to spend what they want as long as they pay a luxury tax to the bottom team. Yeah, um, I think Ray actually asked this question when I was on the Gieber show talking about a similar subject. Uh, but oh, I think he asked the question and we didn't get to answering it. So thank you for asking again on, on, on this medium. Um, I think... Um, I think we're kind of going in that direction. However, uh, USL seems reluctant to allow any more affiliate or uh, not affiliate teams. They'll allow affiliate teams where uh, an MLS team is loading five guys or whatever, uh, five young players to, to an existing USL independent team. The USL, my understanding is, is getting a little more uh, reluctant to allow reserve teams and two teams, which is a shame because I think if you have a closed system, which we have, that's the best way to develop players. Um, now, I would advocate opening the system and having promotion and relegation and incentivizing smaller teams to develop players and scout locally. Um, and if you have uh, between UPSL, NPSL um, and all the USL leagues, we have about 400 uh, or, or, or maybe 250 to 300 potential teams to be in a in a pyramid that could scout locally and, and help develop players that way. Um, but if you don't have that, I guess this minor league affiliate thing might be a good uh, might be the only other option. I would advocate going the pro rel route. But if you're if you're going to have close leagues, I think it's better than what we got. Um, in terms of the luxury tax, this is something I like. Um, I backed off of the idea of salary caps. I used to think salary caps were good for competitive balance, but now I realize they're also uh, bad for uh, for uh, they curtail the ambition. The more more ambitious clubs, they don't allow the kind of natural spending and development of a transfer market that you would need. So as long as you have a salary cap, you're going to have a limited transfer market, which is kind of the currency that fuels this sport globally. Uh, yeah, a luxury tax is a good idea. In fact, the NASL uh, implemented a luxury tax uh, toward the end of its it, it, its run um, in, and uh, uh, didn't really get much fanfare for it because the league was, was, was collapsing for other reasons at the same time. But uh, I think that that's the solution. And in that league in particular, you had two teams, uh, the Cosmos and Miami FC, that were spending a lot of money on players, uh, but uh, they were being taxed or being uh, fined, if you will, or taxed. 
for, for, for that spending. Uh, that's better than having a hard salary cap, in my opinion. And I think a luxury tax isn't a bad idea for a league like the Premier League. Now, I think the TV money makes – makes it maybe uh, not as uh, necessary in the Premier League, but let's say a league like uh, like Serie A, where Juventus is spending disproportionate to the rest of the league, or SPL is the best example, right? Uh, Celtic spending disproportionate to the rest of that league, that maybe they need a luxury tax there, which uh, allows the other uh, 11 teams in the Scottish top flight to compete, or at least recoup some of uh, uh, um, the benefits of, of Celtic spending. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Well, listeners, if you do have any questions for us about uh, TV rights, streaming, watching your soccer on on, uh, TV apps, whatever it may be, uh, or other questions, you can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com, as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk, and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can always post your comments on the mothership, which is worldsoccertalk.com. And don't forget, too, the World Soccer Talk podcast is now available on the Pandora mobile app. And uh, thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every Thursday. Every episode is released on SoundCloud, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, and WorldSoccerTalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. We'd greatly appreciate it. And Kartik, heading into the Women's World Cup, as well as um, I think Major League Soccer still is playing some games, and I'm sure there's other games happening from around the world too. As well as, of course, uh, UEFA Nations League final. Uh, This is going to be Sunday, I believe. What should they do? Enjoy your football. 